Leo Tolstoy wrote a short story entitled, How Much Land Does a Man Need? In the story, the main character, whose name is Pahom, which is rather unusual, uh, he has a conversation, Pahom does, with the devil. And in that conversation, the devil convinces him that he doesn't have enough land. Pahom, all of a sudden after this conversation, gets discontented with his current circumstances, his houses and his lands, and so uh, eventually the devil convinces him. He says, I will give you land enough. And so the story continues. Pahom works hard and acquires some more land for himself, and then soon he finds that he's discontented again. And so he works hard and finds some more land, and then he gets discontented Again, the cycle repeats itself until at one point in the story, he comes across an Indian tribe. Well, maybe I should just say tribe. Uh, A tribe, and he finds out that they are selling land at 1,000 rubles a day. This seems a good deal to Pahom, but he's not sure what it means entirely. And so he asks the chief what it means, and the chief elaborates. He says, for 1,000 rubles a day, a man can start out when the sun comes up, and all the land that he can cover will make up the boundaries of his property, provided that he is back at the place he started by sunset. This sounds like a pretty good deal to Vahom. And so he goes home the night before he is to make his big uh, trip to cover as much land as he can, and he just can't sleep. He is stirring on his bed. He is eager with expectation and hope. So he wakes up early, The sun comes over the horizon, and he begins his journey. If he were uh, in our area, I imagine he would start out maybe right here, and he sees Brent's Gap and say, oh, I'm going to have that. And then from Brent's Gap, he sees the three ridges. Oh, I need to have that. Oh, and that that bit down there, Stony Creek. He just, he's so excited. He's, He's moving from land to land. He wants more and more. And so the way I picture it, he begins to run. And that's where we're going to leave Pahom for now. We'll come back to him later. Running and covering as much land as possible. But as we make our way through 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning, I want you to ask yourself this question. What am I running after? What circumstance in my life do I find myself discontented with? What is it that I need to feel that I have enough? Again, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 once more. I keep laughing at myself because we were going to do this in one week, and this is our fourth week there, uh, and it's going to be our final week in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Our main idea is the same, and so perhaps you've learned it by now, but it's this, that Christians, this is what Paul wants us to learn from the chapter, that Christians can honor God in both singleness and in marriage. In any and any situation you find yourself in as a Christian, you are able to honor God there. And then our exhortation this morning, what I want to exhort you to, is to be the church and to walk with God in your current circumstances, in your current situation. So with that in mind, let's pray. We'll do some background work, and then we'll get into the text. Speak, Lord. Speak to us this morning. God, 
God, we know that you do not yield Scripture's treasures to those who are lazy. And so that you, we pray that you would make us diligent in our listening and in our thinking in our commitment to focus on what it is you would have to say to us in your word. We want to reap the diamonds of Scripture that lie within its mine. God, we ask that you would speak to us, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to listen. We need you to speak to us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the first two questions that we have to answer, there are two big questions we have to answer before we approach this chapter, is especially if you've read it on your own or you've been disconnected in our time together here, uh, one of the first questions people have when they come to a, a book like 1 Corinthians and a chapter like chapter 7 is, is this authoritative for my life? Is this the word of God? And Paul does some things here. He, he says at various point, points, the Lord says, but I say. Or I don't have a command from the Lord, but this is my opinion. And so people wonder, is this the word of God or is it not the word of God? And the answer is, yes, it is the word of God. It's not as if Paul is being carried along by the Holy Spirit, writing scripture one second, and then all of a sudden, all that inspiration is just sucked out of him, and it's no longer the Word of God. It's no longer authoritative, no longer Spirit-inspired. That, that's not the case. When Paul uses the phrase, the Lord, he's using a, a title for Jesus, and what he's doing is being careful to delineate between what Jesus taught during his earthly ministry and what Jesus is teaching now through his Holy Spirit-inspired apostles. He's delineating between what Jesus taught on earth in the flesh and what he is teaching now. In some of the circumstances that we've already seen as it relates to uh, marriage and divorce, uh, Paul points us to what Jesus taught specifically in his ministry to a specific situation. Then he says, I'm going to broaden that out and show you how it applies to this specific situation that you guys have given rise to, this question that you've asked me. And so similar things happen throughout the chapter, but the point here is that it's all God's word. And to pit Jesus against Paul is to pit God's word against God's word, and that is foolishness. This is God's word, and we are to submit to it. The second thing that we need to point out is that as many things that the Corinthians get wrong, and they get a bunch wrong, we've seen it's a really messed up church full of messed up people, uh, a lot like us, but they get this right. They ask Paul this question. They've written him a letter, and they've asked him, how should we live in relationship to our sexuality? Because it seems, from what we learned in chapter 6, and, and now what we've gotten into in chapter 7, that there are two different groups of people. And there's a more hedonistic group of people that is saying, if it feels good, do it. Right? And they were saying, we can't really sin in the body. The body doesn't, ma doesn't matter Sin happens on the spiritual level, and so we can do whatever we want with our bodies. And remember, at the end of chapter 6, Paul says, no, your bodies do matter. Jesus is going to raise your body from the dead. When you unite your body to someone who is not your spouse, you are uniting Christ with a prostitute. Don't do this. Glorify God with your body. It matters. And now there's another group. 
that we came across in chapter 7. They are ascetics. And so their mantra is, if it feels good, don't do it. Right? And so they think the, the more holy way to live is complete celibacy. And so there's this kind of question, am I more holy if I'm single, God? Or, or is it okay to be married? Paul, what should we do? And Paul writes to them and says, look, marriage is good. Singleness is good. Each has his own situation, his own gift. And we've been using verse 7 of chapter 7 kind of like a paradigm through which to view the chapter. So you want to turn there, we can read it. This is what Paul says there. I wish that all people were as I am, which is single, but each has his own gift. One person has this gift and another has that. What he means is he's referring to the two primary gifts in the chapter, the gift of singleness and the gift of marriage. And I've tried to be careful to say these are not giftings of capacity. Like, I'm really, really good at being single, and so I need to stay single my entire life. If that were the case, I might still be single because I was good at it. Way better at singleness than marriage. So it's not a gift of capacity. And Chelsea's like, amen. <laughs> but it's not a gift of capacity, but a gift of situation, right? So if you're here in your marriage, you currently have the gift of marriage. And if you're here and you are single, you currently have the gift of singleness. And that might change. I mean, if you're married, folks, as we talked about last week when we talked about singleness, most of you will be single again because your spouse is probably going to die before you. Like, you aren't going to drift off into the sunset together holding hands. It usually doesn't go that way. And so, Paul's exhortations to both married couples and singles, they, they apply to you. And singles, you might not always be single. You might be married one day. And so we need to hear what Paul has to say to both groups in both situations. And both groups share a common gift. Paul doesn't call it a gift specifically here, but I'm going to call it that. I think it's the third and most important gift we find in the chapter, and it is the gift of calling. And we find it in verses 17 through 24, and I think this is the real heartbeat of chapter 7. One of the things I want you to notice here as we get ready to, to read these verses is Paul repeats the uh, same phrase a bunch of times, same word. And a great practice when you are reading your Bible is to look for repeated words and phrases. When you're really trying to figure out, what is this author trying to tell me? If you can look at repeated words or phrases or ideas, that's going to help you figure out what he's emphasizing. And so let's, let's figure out what Paul is emphasizing here together. Although I guess I kind of already kissed my hat and said calling. Listen to what he writes. Let each one live his life in the situation the Lord has assigned when God called him. This is what I command in all the churches. Was anyone already circumcised when he was called? He should not undo his circumcision. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? He should not get circumcised. Circumcision does not matter, and uncircumcision does not matter. Keeping God's commands is what matters. Let each one of you remain in the situation in which he was called. Were you called as a slave? Don't let it concern you. But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. For he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called as a free man is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. 
do not become slaves of people. Brothers and sisters, each person is to remain with God in the situation in which he was called. Calling is at the very center of these passages, and so we have to consider what does it mean to be called by God? It means to have a relationship with God. It means to be called out of our sin and into Christ's righteousness. See, fundamentally, we are at odds with God. We are a people who love to follow our hearts rather than listening to God's word. We want to do what we want to do, and we don't really care what God says. That's the natural state of man. And that's how we remain until something happens. The other day, uh, Chelsea had relegated me to dish duty in my kitchen, and and the window there from my kitchen looks over at the church like this, and and I didn't see her, but but I saw my children kind of playing out there, so I assumed she was somewhere kind of near. And as I was washing dishes, my youngest right now, uh, Owen, is just kind of standing in close to the little driveway there, and and he decides, for whatever reason, that uh, he's going to break out into one of those toddler runs. You've seen them. Uh, where like the bottom part of their body moves, but the top part doesn't, and it's really awkward. So he, he's going to do this run, but he, he starts going towards 151 out there, right down the driveway. And so not seeing Chelsea in view, I, I became a little bit afraid, <laughs> and I quickly uh, ran out of the kitchen into my front yard, and I yelled, Owen Tobias! Get him with the middle name. And he stopped in his tracks. He turned. A smile broadened across his face, and he ran across the yard into my arms. It was awesome. And I carrying him, feeling glad that he was safe, I told him, listen, buddy, you need to listen to Daddy. The path you were on would have led to your death. Mommy and Daddy give you rules for your good. See, likewise, friends, we are on a path of our own making. There's a way that seems right in the heart of a man, but in the end it leads to death. There's a path that seems right to us as we follow our hearts. We feel quite satisfied. And we would remain on that path, but something happens to the Christian. God calls us. And when He does, we stop in our tracks and we turn from the path of death. Joyfully trust in Christ and run into the arms of the Father, into the fellowship of the Son. To be called by God is to be called out of rebellion against God and into fellowship with God. We saw this idea back in chapter 1 and in verse 9. It says, God is faithful. You were called by Him into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this is a fellowship, friends, that isn't ours by right. It's a fellowship that we rejected. It's a fellowship that is only ours because Christ went to the cross. It's only ours because God has called us to it. On the cross, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so that we could drink the cup of God's blessing. On the cross, 
Jesus took hell so that we could have heaven. On the cross, He died so that we could live. And it's on the cross, it's at the cross that we see the heights of God's love for us because we see the depths to which He was willing to go to secure relationship with us. Jesus went to the cross in order to restore the fellowship we were made for to our lives. He went to the cross so that we might be able to respond to God's call. It is the cross that enables us to embrace the wonderful truth of the gospel. It is the cross that enables us to hear God's voice and be moved out of darkness and into marvelous light. It is the call that comes from the cross that enables us to move from spiritual death into spiritual life. When God calls someone, He calls them as a mother calls her children to the breakfast table. He summons and they come. God calls us to Himself and His call does not fail. This is the story of every Christian. I think we're reminded of it in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Paul writes, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, males who have sex with males, no thieves, no greedy people, no drunkards, no verbally abusive people or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. This is a description of our lives apart from God, following our hearts, doing whatever seems right to us. What happens? The call of God. Verse 11, and some of you used to be like this, but the call of God. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God our God. It's the call of God that enables us to embrace the riches of the gospel, to, to respond to the cross. And when we do, our story is no longer alienated from God. On a path to destruction, it becomes one of we are washed from our sins, sanctified, set apart to the service of God, justified, forgiven of our sins, celebrated, this is a glorious truth. It's a truth we can realize only when we respond to the voice of the Lord. If you look back at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 18, Paul says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. And then uh, if you drop down to uh, 22, uh, Paul's talking about the different things people have looked for. So for the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. 
Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. This is not man's gospel. I think if we would have set it up, it would have been dependent upon us in some way. This is God's gospel. In order to be saved, it doesn't require us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. It requires us to simply respond to the voice of God. God is the one who is the active agent in our salvation. He, we do all the sinning and He does all the saving. And it's His saving action that He calls us into, calls us to believe. It's the same salvation he called Paul into. If you remember way back when, when we were going through Galatians, Paul says that he was set apart from his mother's womb, called by God into salvation. This is a wonderful truth. And it doesn't just stop with our being in relationship with Christ. That's where it ends also. Love Romans 8, 28 through 30. Romans 8, the whole chapter, go home, read it. The, the riches there are endless. This is what we read. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. The thing is, when you get called into relationship with God, you are brought into his family, and you do not belong to yourself any longer. He, he, he calls you, he justifies you, and he promises to you, Paul speaks of it as if it's already happened, glorification, that you are going to be with him in glory at the end of all things. Those who have been called to Christ belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. So, so what this means, calling, I think, in this passage has a little nuance to it. I think Paul uses it in two ways. It is tantamount, on the one hand, to our salvation, but on the other hand, it also relates to the situation or circumstances that we currently find ourselves in. You with me? God has not only called us into salvation, he's also called us to our current circumstances. But it is his call to salvation that enables us to rightly evaluate our current circumstances, our current situations. Because when we experience the call of God, when we experience the salvation of the gospel, that means for us that our past is forgiven, that our present is taken care of, and that our future is guaranteed. It means that our hope is no longer in the transient things of the world that are passing away, but instead in Christ. Our hope is not something that is, that is flimsy, something that is unsure. It's certain. I love the way Dr. Morita says it. He says, the Christian hope is not fingers crossed, but thumbs up. Like, it's sure. It's going to happen. And because of that, the Christian no longer has to build their identity or their meaning on the shifting sands of circumstance. Circumstance is, is, is always changing. Not so with the Christian's hope. Look at verses 18 through 22. 
was anyone already circumcised when he was called? He should not undo his circumcision. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? He should not get circumcised. Circumcision does not matter, and uncircumcision does not matter. Keeping God's commands is what matters. Let each one of you remain in the situation in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't let it concern you. But if you can become free, by all means take the opportunity. For he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called as a free man is Christ's slave. Uh, a couple things real quick. Uh, Paul here is not really speaking about the institution of slavery, but it's also important to keep in mind he's not talking about American slavery, chattel slavery that's based on race. Uh, their slavery was more akin to indentured servanthood of a few centuries ago, uh, or even employment, if you want to think of it in contemporary terms. And then the second thing is Paul's not cool with slavery. He's not a fan. Uh, he, he says that slavery, <laughs> not a great way, but slavery's not good. You can, you can be a Christian and be a slave, but you can't be a slaveholder and be a Christian. So, so he's not promoting slavery here. He's speaking into that situation. And his point here is not to talk about slavery or even circumcision, but to refer back to marriage and singleness, this conversation he's been having about relationship status. Paul is saying that those in Corinth need to live to the glory of God in the situations they are currently in, right? The, the question seems to be, if we are to honor God, maybe I need to find a way to be single. If I want to honor God, maybe I need to find a way to uh, get married. But Paul is saying, in the same way that circumcision really doesn't matter. Slavery, it doesn't, that doesn't identify you. He's saying marriage is nothing, Singleness is nothing. These don't mark you out as a Christian. Singleness doesn't identify you as a Christian. Marriage doesn't identify you as a Christian. Circumcision doesn't identify you as a Christian. Slavery doesn't identify you as a Christian. No, the, the mark of a Christian is keeping the commands of God, which sounds a little incongruous to the Jewish mind because they're going, wait a minute, circumcision, that is keeping the command of God. Paul, Paul what on earth do you mean here? I think what he means is this, is that you, you, these outward things that you can do that you think identify you as God's people really don't. What identifies you as someone who belongs to God is that you have experienced the grace of God and the call of God, and now you are living to the glory of God. Your experience of God's grace in your life, your experience of his love, leads you to gratitude. And the way that the Christian loves God back is through obedience to his word. And it's an affectionate obedience. And it's an obedience that we delight in. Because we want to show him our gratitude, our appreciation for the grace we have experienced. Paul comments on this in Galatians 5, verse 6, For in Christ, Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. The mark of the Christian is not circumcision. The mark of the Christian is not marriage or singleness. The mark of the Christian is repentance and faith. It is keeping the commands of God. When you become a Christian, all of your identity markers, some of them will persist, become subordinate to your being in Christ. This is what you're saying when um, you make a confession of Christ and you are baptized. 
Right? You are confessing that I am identifying myself primarily with Jesus Christ, and he is my Lord. That's what, that's what baptism is. It's putting skin on your confession. It's acting out your submission to and your union with Jesus. It's a little bit like, um, do you all remember Nellie's Roadhouse down the way? There's a restaurant that you all told me not to go to when I first moved here. I didn't listen. I went, and it was terrible. Well, what happened was a different group came in, and they, they purchased the space. They renovated it, gave it a new name, and opened the doors. It was under new management. You know it is margaritas now, right? Most of y'all like to eat at margaritas. I know, I have to go there all the time. I like it too. But see, a similar thing happens in baptism. A similar thing happens when we confess Christ and begin following him. God purchases us by the blood of Christ. He renovates our lives. He gives us a new name, the name of his son. And he puts a, a, kind of like a sign around our necks that says, under new management. So that, that no longer are we going to be identified by these tertiary things in life. No longer are we going to be identified by race or socioeconomic status or even our relationship status. No, we are going to be identified by our relationship with Jesus. Paul speaks to this again in Galatians, this time in chapter 3, verse 27. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Paul doesn't mean that you, your Jewishness is, seeks to, ceases to exist when you become a Christian, or that your whiteness or your blackness or your uh, Latino-ness fails to exist when you become a Christian. That's not true. What he's saying is all of these other identity markers become subordinate to your being in Christ, because in Christ, one new man has been made. You're part of the new way to be human. You're something entirely different. You are now part of Christ's family. And together you participate in the sonship of Christ. Friends, we are not defined by our skin color. We are not defined by our sin. We are defined by our calling into the family of God. We are defined by our adoption by the Father. We are defined by the blood of Christ shed for us. We are defined by the bond of the Holy Spirit that unites us all together in Him. This is what defines us. And when you are defined that way, when you experience the call of God, you begin to see your circumstances and your present situation in their proper perspective. Circumstances do not define us, nor are they ultimate. Look at verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers and sisters. The time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not own anything. 
and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For this world in its current form is passing away. And I like to add the first part of 32 in here. I want you to be without concerns. You see, what's going on in Paul's rhetorical flourish here, what, what he's saying to us, is that we should hold on loosely to this life. Because these momentary pleasures or momentary griefs or momentary possessions are all fading. They're not things in which we should put our hope. Because to put our hope in these things is to put our hope somewhere that fails. See, the Christian hides their hope in Jesus Christ, who does not fail, who does not pass away, who does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so Christians are able to rearrange their current life, their current joys, their current buying and selling, their current marrying. All of our current circumstances, we're able to rearrange those in light of the future. We're able to, we're able to rearrange our present in light of the future that is to come. We're able to be content no matter what our circumstances because we are in Christ. And Paul understood this, right? Philippians 4, starting with verse 11, I don't say this out of need, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things, face all circumstances, that's my little emendation there, through Christ who strengthens me. What, what's the secret of being content in all situations? It's hiding our hope in Christ. It's rooting our satisfaction and our meaning and our identity in Jesus rather than in that which is passing away. Still, we live as if our current circumstances were ultimate. Imagine with me, if you will, that Warren Buffett, for whatever reason, if you don't know who Warren Buffett is, he's like really, really rich, really wealthy, billions upon billions. Imagine Warren Buffett passed away and left all of his money to you. Now, all you had to do to claim it was to get to the bank down here and sign some paperwork. Now imagine with me that, that you, you get into your car to go to the bank, which I, I assume for most of you, the bank here is not that far from your house. And you're on your way, you're pretty happy about it. But about 100 yards from the bank, you get a flat tire. And you have to pull over to the side of the road. Are you going to freak out about the flat tire? I can't believe I got a flat. This is the worst day of my life. How will I live? What am I going to do? Nah, man, you're going to shrug that off. Who cares? I'll walk the rest of the way. I'll thumb it. I have an inheritance coming. There's a payday coming, and it's going to be glorious for me. This momentary setback is not, it's not that big of a deal. What flat tires are you overly concerned about in your life? Because, Christian, you have been promised an inheritance, a wealth far beyond that of Warren Buffett. What is it that is taking your eyes off of that inheritance? 
and on to that which is temporary, passing away. What are you discontented about? What are you worried about? I know this isn't easy. I'm, I'm naturally a worrier, and I'm going to share two stories with you here. Uh, the first one is about Chelsea. She wasn't supposed to be in service today, but we'll, we'll do it anyway. Uh, when we were getting married, we almost had like a non-wedding. I didn't know about it until after the fact. But what happened was uh, the wedding venue that we used, part of the, the way it worked was you paid for the venue on the wedding day, and Chelsea, about half an hour before we're supposed to say our vows, is attempting to, to pay uh, this cost. And she has a, apparently had some kind of protection thing on her debit card that would not allow her to withdraw the necessary funds to pay for our venue. And so uh, as the bride-to-be, she's, <laughs> I think, in her wedding dress at this point, uh, wedding dress, ready to go. It's her big day. And, you know, a couple hundred guests outside, and the wedding director declares to her, the person in charge of the venue, if you don't pay, you don't get married. Right? Before that escalated too quickly, we had another friend step in and foot the bill temporarily for us, and everything went okay. But in that moment, she was going, I'm overwhelmed. What, what do I do? All kinds of worry. We look at that now, though, and laugh so small. It's as insignificant as swatting a gnat away from your sweet tea as you sit on the porch in the evening. It didn't matter in light of the rest of our future together. Now, again, I struggle with worry. I don't want you to think that this is some issue that, that you have that normal people don't have. I, I have it. I think the most stressful time in my life was I was in seminary in 2013, and it was, I don't know, January-ish, and I had a pregnant wife. I was living above my mother-in-law, and no job prospects. I was waiting tables. And I really struggled with, God, what, what are you doing? I'm trying to get to the point where, hey, if you've called me to uh, work at this restaurant and love my wife, that's what I want to do. And I, I still struggled with trying to find contentment there. To the extent I often complained, and I'll never forget on the phone with my buddy, uh, complaining about how, what, you know, I've been in school for eight years, I, I need to find a job, and I, what is, what's God doing? And then having Barb buzz in on the other line and say, hey, do you want to come to Rockfish and preach? <laughs> and me going, oh, okay. <laughs> you guys know the rest of that story. That's so foolish of me to be worried about that. Because the one who called me keeps me and has my good in view. No matter what my circumstance is, he's sovereign. Remember in Romans 8, it says, For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So the answer to that verse that we all know in Romans 8, 28, that all things are working together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. How? Verse 29. These things are working to conform us to the image of His Son. So no matter what's going on in my life, no matter what I'm worrying about, God is using that to press me into the mold, into the image of Jesus. And that's what I should want above all else. Not a pastorate. It's worthless in light of eternity. I should want Jesus. 
I should want Jesus rather than whatever I think is best for a particular situation because God knows better than I do. Worry is so foolish. I love, uh, I can't remember who said it. Somebody said, worry is the misuse of imagination. And I think if we would put our imaginations to their right use, we would be imagining what it's going to be like to be with Jesus forever and ever without end. Amen. Rather than trying to figure out how we could better orchestrate the events of our lives than God. You know, that's just what you're doing when you're worrying. You want to play God. I love Tim Keller says, worry is thinking that God will get it wrong. He's not going to get it wrong. He's God. You know who's going to get it wrong? You. Trust Him. I know it's, I know it's hard when you are being pressed on and you have a weight on your shoulder and you feel like you can't breathe. The situation is so hard. Trust Him. Be, be like the child who believes there's a monster under his bed that's going to get him. He won't go into that dark room who grasps his father's hand and says, Daddy, I trust you, and so I'll go in. Grab him by the hand. Trust him. He's pressing you into the image of Christ. The flat tire is for your good. God does not have you where you are without reason. Acts 17.26, I love this verse. From one man, God has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. You are where you are right now because God put you there. It's your job to trust Him there. There is purpose in God's placement. Friends, we need to pray that we would stop being discipled by our fears and that we would start being discipled by the Word of God. Pray that we would stop living as if this world was all there is. It's one thing to know that there is a great inheritance coming for us, that there is a resurrection coming. It's another thing to live like it. There's nothing wrong with your life right now that a good resurrection cannot fix. What is it that you are running after? What is it that circumstances you're trying to change? What, what is it that you feel like, if I get that, it'll be enough? Is it a job? Good health? A good family? Spouse? Perhaps it's even land. Pahom had been running all day, as far as the eye could see. And though he became very, very tired, very weary, he drove himself with every fiber of his being to get just a little bit more land. Just as the last bit of burnt orange sunlight snuck behind the cover of darkness, Pahom arrived at the place he had started. He fell face down, 
The tribe gathered round, and the chief bellowed. I can't remember. Something like, what a fellow! He has gained much land. But Fahom did not rise. His servant ran over quickly and found, after trying to lift him, that Fahom was dead. The tribe clicked their tongues in derision and pity. And Fahom's servant grabbed his spade and begun, began to dig a grave for Fahom. In, in the end, he got all the land he needed. Six feet from his head to his heel. Land enough. Whatever it is that you're running after or worried about or pursuing as enough is going to leave you, even if you get it, even if you get your way, unsatisfied. It's going to leave you feeling a little bit like home. There is only one treasure in this life that satisfies. There's only one thing that you can run after and know you are going to be good. You're going to live. Jesus tells a parable of a man who finds in a field a treasure of infinite value. And he buries the treasure and sells everything he has and then comes and buys that field because he knows the treasure's there. I wonder, have you sold everything you have? Have you given up on all of your other hopes and put all your hopes in the only treasure that can deliver? What are you running after? What circumstance are you trying to change? What do you think will satisfy you? LSU won the College World Series back in 2009. And after they won, one of their players who was coming back the next year had brought a jar with him. And what he did was he, he scooped the dirt from the field up into the jar, sealed it, took it with him. And what he would do every time the baseball team the following year would face adversity, be down a lot of runs, having trouble, so he would open that jar and he would take it around to all of his teammates and say, get a whiff of this. Fellas, this is where we're headed. We're headed to glory. Church, open up your Bibles and smell. Look around at one another. And get a whiff. We are headed for glory. And our life together is a foretaste of that. And it's a glory that we can sniff even now only because Jesus allowed his nostrils to be filled with the scent of death and blood and tears mixed with sweat. Jesus went to the cross to experience an eternity of misery in the short term for the joy of reconciling us to himself in the long term. Friends, for us, 
to follow Jesus means to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him. And in the short term, that might be difficult. The short term will mean a cross for your back. But the long term, because of the cross, will mean a crown of life for your head. You can trust this victorious resurrection, risen from the dead, God. You can trust Him in your current situation. And so the big point of chapter 7 is that God can use you wherever you are. Wherever you are is where God has you right now. You don't have to change your relationship status, single or married. You don't have to change your circumstances in order to serve the King. You don't need to seek to change your situation What you need to do is to seek first the kingdom of God in your situation. Christians can honor God wherever they are. Jesus was the ultimate example of this. Honored God in the situation of going to the cross to die for our sins. So let us go, trust in His grace, and be like him, recognizing that God is using all of our situations, all of our circumstances, to press us into Jesus' image. Let us bear our crosses with our eyes towards the crown of life that is to come. Let's pray. Father, Help us to never get over the gospel. Help us to to never take for granted the death of Christ in our place for our sins. To not take for granted his resurrection and his promise to raise us. We thank you that this is not man's gospel. It's your gospel. Thank you for showing us that all that's required of salvation is for us to acknowledge our need of you, to come to you weak and weary, to come to the fountain that is filled with blood, and to plunge ourselves beneath that blood of Christ, to be saved. You are our hope and our stay. We thank you that our joy in you is unassailable, unshakable joy. Thank you that you have given us a life and a happiness that even the greatest griefs of this world cannot extinguish. You are so good to us. God, let us rejoice in you. Let us Keep our eyes not on that which is passing away. Let us not give in to the tyranny of the temporary. Let us submit ourselves to you. Help us to live with an eternal perspective. Help us to live in light of the cross and in light of the crown that is to come. You are our good and mighty King. And we worship you together now. Amen.